Hey everybody, Adam Stott here. Thanks for checking out my podcast, Business Growth Secrets. You're absolutely in the right place. This podcast is going to reveal to you all of the secrets that you've been looking to discover that can allow you to cure your cash flow problems, attain more clients, bring in more leads for your business, and create systems and processes that give you the growth that you want. You are going to discover the business growth secrets you have been looking for that I've used to sell over 50 million pounds worth of products and services on social media and help clients everywhere to grow their businesses on the mark. So let's get started on the Business Growth Secrets podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this very, very special episode of today's podcast, Business Growth Secrets. You're with your host, Adam Stott, and I am super excited to be welcoming onto the podcast the the one and only John Caldwell, who was the creator and founder of uh, Phones For You, who he went on to sell for nine-figure sums and joining the very exclusive Billionaire Club. Um, Not only is he somebody that's been ultra-successful in business, he is somebody that gives hugely to charity and has done a lot of great things in his career. And I'm super, super excited to talk to him today. I just mentioned to John a moment ago that we've been we've been trying to get John on the podcast for two years. He's a very busy man. And I'm really, really pleased to have you on today, John. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Perfect. So really wanted to, I know that you've just had a new book that has launched and I've, I've had the opportunity to, you know, study some of that over the past couple of days. And the new book, Love, Pain and Money, The Making of a Billionaire, is something that I'll be reading from cover to cover. I'm a massive fan of business autobiographies, and I think there's so much that you can learn. Uh, my first sort of question that I wanted to jump into was was the title. Is that what it takes to become a billionaire? Love, pain and money? <laughs> uh, no, because I think you could leave out. <laughs> you could leave out the love, couldn't you? Um, you could leave out the love for some people, certainly, but my life has very much been about love. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, there's been a lot of pain. <laughs> Fortunately, there's been a lot of money, you know. So <laughs> we we let wrestled over a title for some time, but yeah. it just kept coming back to well, what's the book about? It's about love, it's about pain. And it's about money, so it seemed to be the best title of all. Yeah, I found it really intriguing when I saw that, you know, as, as to how that how you'd come up with it. And, of course, um, re- reading the story, and I've, I've now interviewed lots of really successful people, and um, from the successful people that I've, I've interviewed, it seems to be certainly the pain is almost a prerequisite of, of, of getting there, right? And, I always uh, say no pain, no gain, don't they? <laughs> whatever you're trying to do, whether you're trying to be a world champion cyclist like my partner or whether you're training in the gym or whatever you do, if you want to succeed, you've got to be prepared to take some pain. Absolutely. absolutely. And uh, really wanted to start off with there and, and kind of uncover a bit of the story for those people that haven't read the book and you know understanding that the the accomplishments that you've had are absolutely huge you know only they say there's only 56 british born billionaires out of 68 million people right which means that i know you're a humble guy but it's a very special achievement right really really special and an achievement that very few people ever get to say that they accomplished so really for me what i wanted to start off by is is really talk about right at the beginning of your journey you know was this something that you set out to do? Was this something that you set out to travel? What did you think at the beginning of your journey starting in business? What did you think was possible? What did you think was not possible? And where did you start from? Because there's a lot of people starting out right now and they don't 100% know they're, where they're going. I'd like to, from someone that took it all the way home, like to understand the mentality at the beginning. Well, certainly being a billionaire was never, ever, ever anything I conceived of. Um I mean, it all started when I was seven years old and I had a dream that I was going to be wealthy, successful and philanthropic. And I was visualized as me driving in the back of a Rolls Royce, which was my father's uh, hero car, uh, and giving five pound notes out to poor people. Um, I went on, of course, then to set up business. And initially it was about financial security, about being able to provide for my family 
if anything happened to my health, which I expected it to, because it happened to my father and his father and his father. So I never expected to have a healthy life. And I wanted to make sure that if I had a family, I left my family in a decent financial position. So it was really all about financial security to begin with. But I'd always been impossibly ambitious. And it doesn't matter what I've ever achieved. I've always wanted to achieve a lot more. So once I made a little bit of money, I wanted to make a lot. Once I made (laughs) a lot, I wanted to make a heck of a lot more. And eventually, although the hunger for wealth died, I still wanted to rule the world. You know, I wanted to be the the biggest and the best in mobile phones Mm. in the world. And we were at one time the biggest distributor in the world of mobile phones, wholesale distributor. We were one of the biggest uh, accessory distributors. So we achieved a lot of those ambitions. But um, but even that, you know, no matter what ambition you have, it can end up feeling a little bit empty. And my original dream of being philanthropic just took over more and more and more. And I realized... I didn't even need to be any more successful. I didn't need to make more billions. I didn't need to uh, be seen as the best in mobile phones or anything else. What I wanted to do was start changing people's lives. And uh, that became a huge driving force. Although I've still got lots of businesses now, you know, so I haven't exactly left this behind. But certainly charitable works and changing people's lives is very much at the forefront of what I want. Absolutely. And you said when you started out on the beginning of the journey, you mentioned there about time and you you had that impact of you may be. And I think it's really interesting because the way that you framed that is like you were actually aware that you haven't got all the time in the world. And I think a lot of people are not aware of that. A lot of people leave things till tomorrow, leave things till next week, leave things till next month. I'll start my business next year, that kind of thing. And really, they're just pushing that back. But it sounds like your early experiences showed you the value of time. Would you say that? And and I think that's a massive lesson, isn't it? It is. You've got to, um, you know, you've got to do, you've got to work at a ferocious pace, make decisions on the hoof rapidly, implement them today, not tomorrow, but make sure you implement the right ones. So if there's a decision that is too complex to make on the hoof and make rapidly. And there was very few of those in my life, actually. Most of them were made instantaneously through instinct, I suppose, you know, or just really understanding what I needed to do. But but if you can't make that decision instantly, then you do have to think about it. And, of course, I did have to think about quite a few decisions because the decisions were too, too complex to make rapidly and I might need, have needed research and evidence and compiling information to help me make the decision. But my central philosophy is never to put off till tomorrow what you can do today. And don't put off till ne- the next hour what you can do this minute. Get it done. Be a doer. Not a thinker. And uh, not a theorist, but be a doer, because it's the doing that makes the money. As long as what you're doing is right and proper and you're not making big mistakes. So you've got to be avoiding the mistakes. Mistakes are deadly in a business. We all make them, but you've got to make sure that the mistakes in proportion are way smaller than the successes you create. Absolutely. And, And how did you cultivate that from an early age to be a doer? Do you think? How did that come to you? Because I think. Oh, I think it was just instinctively in me. I don't know. I mean, I was competitive with everything I ever did. I, I was selling my toys out of my backyard of the Terry's house in Shelton when I was four and five years old and then going round to the kids trying to buy their old toys off them so I could have another jumble sale. And <laughs> I've always just had this entrepreneurial flair. It was instinctive in me. And as was doing things now and being energetic and wanting to get the job done very, very quickly, but to a high standard. Awesome. And and do you feel like along the way, John, you know, I think it's really, really interesting with everything you've accomplished. Have there been people specifically, I, I read in the book that your, that your mother played a big part in inspiring you. You said that she'd been the most inspirational person. 
you know, to, to you on your journey? Was there many people like that? And how did they inspire you and how did they shape you? Well, dealing with my mother first, she wasn't inspirational in business. Mm. The inspiration I uh, received from mom was in her later years when she was paralyzed in bed with a stroke and couldn't speak. And that inspiration was the spirit of, of humor and uh, joy of life, even when you've got nothing. Yeah. And of course, I see this a lot with the children that we help. We help we've helped in Cordwell children, 70,000 children up to yet. We're going to help many hundreds of thousands more, hopefully before I die. Um, and it's those children are often incredibly inspirational because they're born with very little, with challenges and problems. And a lot of them rise to those challenges and problems and, and do things that you and I might be amazed by. Well, I am amazed by mm-hmm. And uh, my mother was the same, you know, she kept the humour, kept the joy of life. And was there was never a time when I turned up to see her, no matter how she was suffering or how ill she was, where she wasn't, didn't manage a great big beaming smile for me and a hug and did the best to be of good humour and good spirit. And that's the inspiration that we can all learn from. And I used to put posts on Instagram all the time of my mum because... She was an inspiration to everybody on how to treat what you've got and feel lucky about what you've got and enjoy what you've got in life because you could have less. Yeah. And I don't mean materialistic things. I'm yeah. talking there about, you know, oh, health yeah. and welfare yeah. and love. And we could all have less than we've got. So you've got to cherish what you do have. And uh, actually, that's a, a lesson in business as well. Now, my mother didn't come into this, but... I applied the same things in business, you know, when when times were really incredibly tough and, and I did have some incredibly tough times in business, Not perhaps not when I thought I was going to lose everything, but where the threats were horrendously strong. And um, at those times, I used to look at what I had got, a yeah. wonderful wife, um, a good family, good kids, whatever, whatever it was. And I, I would counterbalance the stress and grief I was going through by looking at what I've got that's good. And I actually continue to do that all my life, you know, as I'm, as my, and I, I, I have pretty good health, but, um, you know, I used to race motocross machines and then I caved my back in. And, you know, you, you, you could be quite miserable about not being able to race the motocross machine, but then I was able to, do other things, ride a bike and learn to ski and do other things. And as things get pruned out of your life because of age or health or whatever it is, I think you've got to always take a moment to look at what you have got and how fortunate you are to have what you've still got left. Um, and and I think that's just a lesson for, for everybody, you know, me included. And that's uh, the way I've run my life, trying to look at all the positive things in my life rather than the mountains you've got to climb. They say that 68% of people are motivated negatively and 32% are motivated positively, i.e. that more people are worried about keeping what they have got than aspiring to more, like, they're really their their motivation goes towards the negative. They want to look at why everything's so bad and why I can't do this and why I can do this, but the smaller percentage of people are motivated positively by what can I achieve, what can I do, you know, how can I be grateful and have gratitude, which is what you're mentioning. You know, it's really, really interesting that that you you feel that that's such a key lesson um, for you. And did you have many people along the way that helped you in your business? I, I, I saw that and read in the book that you you started in cars. My original, my first ever business was a car business. So I found that really yeah. interesting as well. Yeah. And, I think it's a very good training ground for business. It is. So many things can go wrong. <laughs> a lot yeah. of things can go wrong and you learn about customers. Yeah. You learn about uh, the way some customers will behave in a very disreputable way against you. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I remember a guy going off in his car, bringing it back the next day and saying we'd sold him a car with bald tires. And yeah. Gone to the swapping <laughs> all the tires over. And what what could you do, you know? So you put four new tires on for him and, yeah. um, you know, but we know those people, there's plenty of people like that that exist, but you're, you're right. The car business does teach you, uh, about customers. It teaches you endlessly about sales. 
And how you handle things. She's your best customer service because you've got to, you know, even when a customer like that has, has uh, swapped his tyres over, um, even in that situation, what you learn very quickly is that one disgruntled customer, even if he's completely in the wrong, can do you so much damage that you might as well give him his ill-gotten gains <laughs> the money because then, even though he's scammed you, he yeah. goes away and says, oh, they were wonderful down there, you know, and, and you're getting a, bit, a good reputation out of his, you know, after what he's done to you. So it it, it was a – I learned lots of those lessons in life, actually, that you – it's just very simply under the category customers always right. And we know they're not, but <laughs> – if you treat the customers always right, even though that costs you money, each time you do that, your reputation increases. So you can spend fortunes on advertising, uh, but nothing is ever going to be as good as customers speaking highly of you. So even if you've got a customer that's really cheating you, it's still best to give in and not stand your corner too much. Uh, I mean, of course, there comes a limit to that, yeah. but, <laughs> but fundamentally, I mean, a happy customer is worth everything. And did you enjoy that industry? You sort of started smiling there and he's like, maybe the memory's flooded back. Was it a good time for you? Did you enjoy it? or what, The car sales? Yeah. No, not really. <laughs> I, I didn't really like car sales because it wasn't um, it, it wasn't expandable. It, it wasn't something that you could grow into a proper corporate entity. Yeah, I mean, so much of ours in Stoke-on-Trent relied on me buying cars at a very low price. To the yeah. auctions. So it meant that I might go to the auctions five days a week and I might see hundreds, if not thousands of cars, and some weeks not even buy a single one because there was nothing that was good enough value. Yeah. And I needed value to bring back to Stoke-on-Trent because Stoke-on-Trent wasn't a very wealthy city and still isn't, but certainly wasn't in those days. And so... The Stoke-on-Trent people needed great value for money, so I had to be a shrewder purchaser than than many other people who would take their cars back to wealthier environments and and be able to get away with higher prices. Absolutely. And I I think there's a massive lesson in that, in in net margins. You know, the lesson that I learned, unfortunately, it took me a decade to learn it, was obviously in a a car business, you net 3 4% if you're really good. You know, but in other businesses, you can net 30, 40%, right? So there's certainly much higher profitable areas to be working in. And, and you went over to phones and building the phone business. Obviously, you built that into a giant business. So I bought many, many a phone from phones for you. And, you know, yeah, I remember you, phone. Yeah, you know, I did, you know, many a phone from phones for you. And I, I liked the environment. I know that they were very sales driven, the, the teams in there, I found in, in a good way. You, you always yeah. got. You know, you always got people that were on you, they were looking to help you. And I you know, certainly enjoyed the environment. What was it like building that business? And when you started it, obviously it was a booming industry. So it was an industry on its way up, right? Uh, when you got into, I think it was 1987, right? Is that correct? Yeah. You started you know, late 86, yeah, but effectively 87. Yeah. Um, what was that like? And what made you choose the industry? Because when I was reading the book or reading the parts of it, it was, you kind of spotted, you saw that emerging. You know, and I think that's really huge, isn't it, to get into an emerging market to help you move upwards, right? Well, it wasn't really an emerging market at that time. It was there was no market. It was impo- right. it was impossible even to buy a mobile phone, which I found you know was very very difficult. Um, but I, I just had a thought that mobile phones would really be the future. Right. Because home telephones became the future. When I was a kid, there was no home telephones. Yeah. Um, later on in life, every single person had a, had a home telephone. And I couldn't really see why mobile phones wouldn't go the same way. But there was no trade in mobile phones at all. Um, so uh, it was a bit of a leap, leap of faith of my own judgment that eventually there would be a boom. So yeah. what I did was set my business up to manage that boom, I set a service centre up, a Motorola service centre, so that we were seen to be a credible telecommunications company with service facilities and engineers. We had installation facilities. We did everything to be as professional as we possibly could be um, in order to try and capitalise on a future growth. 
that future growth was very, very slow in coming. I mean, I used to manage my salesmen. They were going out every day and they'd come back day after day after day with no orders. And all I was doing was hemorrhaging money. I was losing £2,000 a month for the first two years. But eventually, um, actually, I lost two people in my car sales business, uh, the two key people. And I lost one of my uh, people in the mobile phone business who ran the mobile phone business for me, managed it. So suddenly, Brian and I, my brother, were, were in crisis mode, wondering how we structured things. And I decided I'd go and run the mobile phone business. And in the first month, I turned a £2,000 loss into a £20,000 profit and suddenly realized there was lots of ways of finding arbitrage opportunities with mobile phones in order to uh, um, really enhance the profitability of the business. Lovely. What do you think with impact was? How? Why were you able to go and turn it around that quickly when other people were not? What was it you? What do you think the mindset going in was, or the you know what do you think that you applied? Was it just the shrewdness again? You know, maybe you picked that up prior. Do you think, or was there some things that you did specifically? Well, it, you know, I mean, it, it starts sounding a bit conceited, doesn't it? Really, but it was just commercial intellect, understanding how. You know, I always thought business is just a bit like a Rubik's Cube. You know, you've got a Rubik's Cube with all these colours all mixed up. And what are you going to do with it? Well, you sit there and fiddle with it, and hopefully you'll get all the colours lined up. Well, business is the same. It's a challenge. Yeah. You've got this huge challenge in front of you. And what do you do to turn it round? And you've just got to have a lot of lateral thinking. And uh, I just had always had a natural opportunity for for spotting, sorry, a natural talent for spotting opportunities and for seeing ways of turning what's a dead business into something that can really be hugely profitable. And what, and what I spotted back then was the, the um, it was quite simple. When I, when I describe it to you, it's quite simple, but nobody else saw it. And yeah. the service providers <laughs> who were selling all the airtime couldn't get Motorola transportable phones. Motorola was starving them. Mm. I could get all that I wanted, but I was paying £80 more, fifty between £50 and £80 more per phone than the service providers were. The service providers desperately needed to sell phones to get connections on their airtime. And the customers yeah. were hundreds of pounds to them. Mm. Well, if they hadn't got the mobile phones to sell, they couldn't get the connection. So I went to two or three of them and said, look, I can get the mobile phones because Motorola are overcharging me for them. And because they're overcharging me for them, they'll sell me more. And I can then sell them to you, but I'm going to have to charge you a lot more than you've been used to paying. But then you're going to wish you'd win your customer. And if you don't win your customer, you've got no business. If you do win your customer, they're worth eight, nine hundred or a thousand pounds each on the open market where if you come to sell your business. So you desperately need these phones. You can't afford just to sit there not winning customers. And I said, what I'll do, I'll sell them to you genuinely for what I pay. And I will work solely for a retrospective rebate, which I could get from Motorola for volume. And I want a 4% retrospective rebate from Motorola. And meanwhile, then I was selling all these phones. So you've got Motorola selling me thousands of these transportables. <laughs> I was then shipping them out to the service providers who were paying 50 to 80 pounds more per phone. And I was taking my 4% over that entire volume. And that's what turned it around the very first month into a 20,000 pounds profit from a 2,000 watt. But there were lots of those sorts of opportunities by being smart, by being savvy, by looking at the issues, looking at the problems, looking at the arbitrage, and mm. finding ways of turning these situations into commercial opportunity. And finding other people's motivation, right? Because you went and found somebody else's motivation and and saw that they needed this and they make their money there. So it was a, a win-win for everybody, which is yeah. uh, really important. So you mentioned lateral thinking and you mentioned the Rubik's Cube, which I love. I love that analogy. You know, so as a business owner or someone starts a business, what do most people do with that Rubik's Cube? They sit there and they just try, 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 try. And in fact, many people just put the Rubik's Cube down and say it's too hard and go and pick up another cube, right? And they would just keep going around the cube after cube after cube. So if you look, were to look at the Rubik's Cube and you, you take that analogy, 
what's your mentality? Is it to blast your way through it and have the, the grit to keep going? Or would you sit back and look at the Rubik's Cube and use lateral thinking? And how does somebody become more of a lateral thinker? That's something that I've thought about. There's a whole bunch of questions there, isn't there? But I think <laughs> the first thing is, whilst I have the general thought of never giving up, yeah, I also have the same full thought of don't be a busy thought. Yeah. And there might be something that is relatively insoluble or insolvable, or even if you solve it, is not profitable or worthwhile. So you've also got to be able to judge commercially whether it's worth persevering or whether it's better to give up, whether that's any individual component of your business or whether it's your business, it's your entire business model. You've got to analyze your business model and say, is there a real future for this business model? Um, or am I going to just be a busy fool working like flat out and it'll never really achieve very much? So it's understanding that commercialism on every decision that you make. Um, lateral thinking, I think it's something, I think a lot of, you know, I think being good at business is like being good at anything. You're born with it. You know, if you say, how do you make somebody into a 100-meter Olympic champion? Yeah. Well, you can't. What you start off with is somebody who is inherently a 100-meter Olympic champion, and then they train like mad to be the best they can be and maybe get there. And business is the same. You start off with a set of genetic attributes that you're born with, and then you train those attributes to be the best that they can be. Now, that doesn't mean for any of your listeners that you can't do extremely well just by being applied, whether you're a business genius or not. Yeah. Uh, you can still do very, very well, but there's probably going to be a limitation on how far you can grow because you need my six critical success factors, which are ambition, drive, passion, the resilience to contain all those things and drive like fury. And that resilience is your health and your mental health. It's your, all aspects of your health. And you need that resilience to hold all that drive and passion and long hours together. But then on top of that, you need the commercial intellect to be smart and make really great decisions. And then to build something of really, real, huge significance, you need leadership. And so it's best if everybody in business analyzes which of those skills they have and how much of them, and then just go like mad and develop yourself. But business isn't for everybody. I mean, nine out of 10 businesses fail in the first two or three years, and it can damage people's lives. So I don't encourage people to just go headlong into business. I encourage people to think about it, look at their attributes, and if they really want it and they're really ambitious, yeah, go for it, make a massive success of it, and and be prepared to work all the hours that God sends to succeed. (laughs) Right about. Some people say they get into business because they want more free time, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think anybody that won't goes into business because they want free time. Is on a fool's errand, and they should, should not even think. Oh, it can work out like that. So, you know, I think at it's the a, end, at the end, maybe at the beginning, right? Okay, yeah. absolutely. So, you know, I, I love what you just said. The critical factors, um, fantastic. What What I would like to um, ask now for, for for the audience, really, is those cr- critical factors are all built up in the mind, right, John? You know, the resilience. Um, the ambition, the desire, the passion, everything you said, that's the mindset, which is incredibly important. The actual commercial intellect part, that comes down to the skill sets, right? So what skill sets, I mean, if you look at the individual skills, i.e., is for you the most important? Is it to be a great marketer? Is it to be a great salesperson, whether that's selling individually or selling the vision? Is it to be a great strategist on business? Is it to be a great person at branding? Which of the skill sets would you say that are really important for a business owner? Well, of course, it depends on what business you're in, mm. and it depends on what uh, what phase of business growth you're in. Yeah. But certainly for most businesses at the beginning, it's all of those things, and yeah. especially finance. You've yeah. got to be attuned to every single aspect of your business. And you've got to be ambitious and risk-taking and yet prudent. And I can give you an example of that. Yeah, I love it. When, um, 
Uh, it's a bit of a complex example. I'm just trying to think out and simplify. We we came up with the idea. One or two mobile phone people came up with the idea of netting, which meant we bought a phone for five or six hundred pounds. We were going to get three or four hundred pounds commission. So we sold it to dealers who hadn't got uh, much cash flow net of the commission. So we financed their business up front. So right. you buy a phone for five hundred instead of selling it to the dealer for five fifty or whatever, and then paying him a commission later, you discounted his commission off yeah. the price of the phone. That left you desperately needing that connection back from that dealer. It meant you were extremely exposed to the credit risk of that dealer. And I controlled that with an iron rod, you know, that was absolutely <laughs> rigid control. We called it the activation book, where we'd got to get these activations back. And any dealer defaulting for more than a few days was chased like mad. And my team said, look, there's a guy down the road. He's selling hundreds to various dealers in Birmingham. And I said, well, we're not going to sell hundreds. We're going to do lots of dealers, small quantities, so we can never get never get um, into financial difficulty. And they were dead against me. What happened to the guy in Birmingham selling them down the selling them was that he sold to a bunch of uh, well, they were mafiosa type individuals, the criminals. They mm-hmm. took all these phones off him, hundreds of thousands of pounds worth. He never got paid for them. And when he chased them, they threatened his life. And he and his family actually ended up moving out of the UK to go to Florida. And, you know, having that prudence, the way you manage the business, not being greedy. Yes, ambitious and going for everything, but in a safe way. You know, and anybody that takes risk on credit control, the risk that you take on one deal on credit control, if it goes wrong, might cost you 10 deals to recover that risk. Yeah. On yeah. the profit. So being risk averse while at the same time being ambitious is a delicate balance. It's a difficult balance to have, but I would, I would always advise people to be on the prudent side. But of course, you've got to be ambitious. You've got to grab every sale you can, but in a risk, in as most risk-free manner that you can possibly achieve it. Otherwise, you are genuinely risking your business, uh, the business security. Absolutely. So, so for you, you're moving into the the finance, obviously being critical and and being really super important. Is that what you? If you had a superpower in business, what do you think your superpower is? Sales, marketing, leadership. What do you think your your special source is? <laughs> I would say my, if you're going to call it a superpower, yeah, um, I would say being a jack of all trades. I was one of the best in my company at every discipline in the early stages. And then look for people that were better than me, which then brings on to leadership and commercial yeah. internet. You know, I was lo- always looking for somebody that was better than me in every uh, discipline. And I did find them. I found people that were better than me in every discipline. But initially, my initial superpower was being good at all of those things and being able to handle the whole business, every single discipline and do it well. And eventually got these people who were way better than I was at each discipline. And then, of course, that helped the business grow and keep forging on. And then it was all about leadership. And mm-hmm. leadership then is so crucial, along with the commercial intellect. Absolutely. Did, did you ever get overwhelmed by anything? Was there anything that overwhelmed you? Or was there anything you was afraid of? Or anything that you hated doing or that you tried to avoid doing? Or did you, did you have that mindset? Well, anything, anything that I didn't like doing, I always made it sure that I employed brilliant people at that area. Um, fear, I always feared my suppliers because my suppliers could kill me. And I always feared them. At the same time, I'd got to be a hard negotiator <laughs> with them and take every last penny off them. At the same time, knowing that the more money I took off them, Um, in the negotiation, the more they would think of uh, their favourite expression was the tail wagging the dog. And I was the tail and they were the dog. And so there was always a danger with every supplier that they would want to clip clip my wings and cut off my uh, ability to perform. 
and and as you might have read in the book, or if you haven't yet, you will do, mm. that Motorola did exactly that when I was 50 people and about 20 million turnover, and I was in utter crisis mode because 95% of my sales were Motorola. And without Motorola, it was almost instantaneous bankruptcy. Right. Absolutely. And and you diversified then from Motorola out. Well, I found a couple of uh, a couple of ways through it. So I reversed the model of selling to the service providers, and went to a couple of service providers that I had helped out by supplying them with equipment. Went with a very strong proposition for them, and didn't let them. They had no idea that Motorola had um, had cancelled my distribution contract, and my business was now defunct. And I went to them and said, look, I've got a great idea here. Let's pool our buying power. I was one of the biggest buyers in the UK. Uh, let's pull my buying power onto yours. You sell me at cost price and you'll get a much cheaper price because you suddenly up the volume and we'll work together. And I did that with two or three uh, service providers, guaranteed them that I would keep it secret and Motorola would never know where the product came from because otherwise... They would have played the same game with mm. those service providers and cut their supply off, uh, and we kept it secret. And so I was able to then buy Motorola product, and I was then buying it even more cheaply <laughs> than buying it directly. At the same time, I was determined to kill Motorola. I was <laughs> really, really uh, well. They tried. They tried to destroy my business overnight. And uh, and it was even worse than that, actually, because the guy that cancelled my distribution contract then set up, left Motorola and set up a dealership on the south coast with my distribution contract and took it over. Mm. So I had I had also a bit of a an issue with him, as you might imagine, and it made me ferociously competitive. But at the same time, uh, and it was a bit of a stroke a lot because I met with Nokia and I was looking for replacements for Motorola. Any any uh, manufacturer of mobile phones that I felt could be competitive. And I had a little bit of a stroke of luck because Nokia at that time had only got 1.5% market share in the UK. And they had got 3,000 phones that they hadn't been able to sell. And I was able to do a deal with them to take their entire end-of-line supply I took all of those 3,000 phones, which at the time was the biggest phone deal ever done in the mobile phone market. It's nothing now, but it was then. Yeah. Um, and what I did then was uh, sold them, pushed them like mad against Motorola product. Even though I'd got Motorola and I'd got them at a very favorable price, I pushed the Nokia against Motorola. Nokia was so pleased with me that they gave me a big volume on their new 101 product, which was extremely desirable, and we attacked Motorola again. And within a year, my business had grown Nokia from 1.5% market share to 20%. I was still selling huge quantities of Motorola from the service providers, and in the meantime, giving Motorola a bloody nose with Nokia and being <laughs> the hero of Nokia. And I managed to turn an absolute fiasco into... I wouldn't go as far as to say a goal mine because it was all very, very tough going and hard yeah. one, but into a real success story. Nice. It's amazing. And also shows it can be done. Find a way, right? No matter what, find a way. Find a way. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes, sometimes there's not a way. And, and that's, <laughs> sometimes there's not a way. And, and when there's not a way, if you're certain there's not a way, then you've got to either change what you're doing dramatically or give up with what you're doing. And so you do need to be analytical and not just dogmatic for the sake of dogmatic. But there nearly always is a way. Most chief executives of top country companies, just when there's a downturn, they just blame the economy. They blame the exchange rate. They blame this. They blame that. Instead of thinking, well, it's my darn fault because I haven't found a way. I haven't seen it coming. I haven't found a way. I haven't created a competitive business that's got low costs. And You know, they just make an excuse. And we, we call them pond skaters. You know, they, they, they land on the pond like a little insect skirt along the surface, hardly making a blemish, and then go on to the next job after they've failed in that one. 
And that's not what a chief executive job is to do. A chief executive's job is to get into the detail and find ways of lowering overhead, of creating a better product at a lower price and increasing sales. And they're all just very obvious and simple statements, but doing it's a bit more complex. You know, it's, a, it's an endless challenge for any def- decent chief executive to achieve all of those things simultaneously so that you really enhance your, G- enhance your profit, enhance your sales, your profit, and reduce your overheads. Absolutely. You know, all amazing lessons, you know, really, really amazing lessons. I've just got a couple of uh, last questions before before we wrap up. And then I want to mention uh, the charity work very quickly as well. But one of the things that I've seen that you've done really, really well is, is built lots of relationships with lots of very high level people. Um, I've, I read that you've got a really good relationship with people like Elton John, Hugh Grant, Robbie Williams, these types of people. And, you know, you've really gone out there and built relationships with great people all over the world. And obviously the giving pledge and things like that as well. Incredible. How important has it been throughout your career to sort of really get around top people? And, and what would you say to people starting out in terms of starting out or somewhere in the middle? How much do they need to aspire to be around top people in order to grow themselves? Yeah, that's a that, that's a two sided question for me because during my mobile phone business, no no top people whatsoever. It really? was all about yeah. you know, top people in the industry, maybe no, no nobody, nobody at all. Really? Yeah, zero. Yeah, you no, know, I, I didn't know a single wealthy or famous person. Did you not? Um, right. It was all about driving the business, driving like fury. But it does depend what business you're in. You know, if you're in. Wealth management. I've got a wealth yeah. management business. <laughs> in wealth management, you want wealthy people. Yeah. yeah. For, for charity, you want wealthy people to join your quest in life, to be yeah. have similar values and join your quest in life. And there's a lot of businesses that, of course, will benefit from networking with wealthy people. So once again, the answer to that is entirely down to the product. My product was a consumer product. Yeah. I was selling wholesale to the dealers. Uh, yeah. wholesale to the re, the, uh, the airtime retailers and selling to the consumers. Wealthy people didn't come into my life at all. I didn't know anybody. Mm. If my charitable works, I mean, I've met people because of my charitable giving. You know, I've donated a lot to Elton John. I met Robbie Williams, of course, who's a local guy. He came on my boat for holiday, then performed for me for Cordwell Children. Hugh Grant was as a result of charity because he donated. I, I got up on stage and raised £250,000. Um, I gave £250,000 to buy a Russian, to buy a Moscow hospital, uh, a special brain scanner so that they didn't damage kids' brains who've got tumours. And this was at a President Gorbachev dinner that was held in London 12, 12, 13 years ago. And I only donated the £250,000 if somebody would match my donation to make half a million to buy the scanner. And yeah. it was a very tense time because I was standing on stage with the microphone and we were getting over and I was there about three or four minutes and it was getting extremely embarrassing when all of a sudden a hand went up and it was Hugh Grant. So <laughs> Hugh and I, with our partners, went to Moscow to meet President Gorbachev and go around the hospital that we had uh, donated the scanner to. So it's charity, really, that's brought me into uh, into the world of celebrity and wealthy people. Uh, and not- branding, John, you, you've obviously built a massive brand now. You know, trying to research you for the uh, for today. I mean, there is so many media articles. There's like thousands, right? So you know, like, and, and all actually with varying bits of information. So obviously about the house, you know, the mirror value is at 250 million, where other people say it's 100. So hopefully your estate agent reads the mirror. (laughs) (laughs) If if it's 100, I haven't haven't seen a value of anything like that. But but if it's 100, then I've blown my brains out. Well, well, the mirror says 250 million, just so you know. I think it's nearer to 500 million, ridiculously. It's just really simple because it's such a spectacular house. There's so many multi-billionaires on the planet, you know, people who are worth yeah. 10 billion, 20 billion, 50 billion. If they want the best house in London, yeah. there's only one house. 
It's not for sale anyway, so they'd have to come and prize me out of it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so what I was saying is like branding now, your brand has gone massive, isn't it? Especially in the last, I, I don't know how long, you obviously would know how long, last seven, eight, nine years, wherever it might be, the brand has just gone huge. Did you not brand yourself whilst building the phone business then? That wasn't a big priority. You were more focused. No, it, it wasn't. I built the phones for you brand, of course, but branding myself, it was probably a mistake, actually, with hindsight. You know, I, th- I think it was probably a mistake because a brand gives you so much more power in everything else that you do in life. And so that probably was a mistake, not pushing myself more forward. But, but I was so flat out with the running of the business. I had 20 companies. We were in every aspect of mobile phones. Some of them were really hairy, sitting on the edge of your seat every single moment of every day. And all of my focus was about managing all of that. And it was a huge, huge task to do. So I was completely and utterly focused on building that those businesses and, and keeping them safe rather than worrying about my own particular brand. But, you know, with hindsight, if I could have fitted in a bit more time, maybe it would have been nice to do. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, well look, you know, I've loved, I've loved talking to you. I just want to mention the, the book again. Obviously, I've started reading it. I knew we had, I had two days to know that we can do it. So I haven't got all the way through it, but I found it amazing so far. And, and I'm a, a big lover of stories like this. You know, I get so much from reading them and I know there'll be so many people on that should get the book. You know, why did you write the book and why should someone listening right now go out and grab it on Amazon? What what sort of impact were you hoping to impact people with the book when you wrote it? Because it's a big undertaking, isn't it? Well, I wrote it to be my life story, a very honest and brutal um, warts and all account of my life story. But a, a definite uh, goal was to make it inspirational because... I've not had an easy life. I've had a very hard life. Yeah. And yes, I've done very well. And I've got a lot of wonderful uh, benefits as a result of that. But I've had a very tough life many, many times. And I wanted to inspire other people, whether they're in business or not, to realize that life can get better, no matter how hard it might be at that time. Stick with it. Work hard. Fight your way through. And it can come good again. It won't always because you are, of course, dependent on your health. Yeah. And it won't always come good, but the harder you fight for whatever it is, whether it's your own health, your family health, your wealth, your business, your spirit, just do the best you can on all of those things and look at all the positives you've got in life and hopefully you'll get through and life will become better. And I hope people can see that message in my book that no matter what your start was in life or no matter what happens to you in life, there is a way of battling through and making things better. And I hope that's what a lot of people gain from that book, the inspiration that, you know, if they're in bad times, it can get better. Yeah, well, I'm absolutely loving it so far, and I've got no doubt it, um, it will have that impact on people. So make sure you go and get a copy if you're listening right now. Love, pain, and money, the making of a billionaire with John Caldwell. And I just wanted to finish finally on the on the charity aspect, um, John. Just well. before you do that, let me yeah. just do one, one other business tip, which yeah. we, we haven't talked about, but it is embedded in what I've said. Yeah. One of my rules are the 10% rule. You can't always apply them, and I wasn't able to apply them. But very simply, try and make sure never more than 10% of your purchases are from any one supplier, no more than 10% of your sales to any one customer, and no more than 10% of your salesmanship within any one salesman. And if you do all those things, Difficult sometimes, depending on what your business is. But if you do all those things, you protect your business from sudden vengeful attacks or whatever, which is what I experienced all the time because I hadn't got any mobile phone suppliers, you know. And so you've got to try and apply that 10% rule if you can. Absolutely. Through through my journey, um, absolutely. The the best salesman that's doing 30% of your sales is going to walk off with your sales. Exactly. (laughs) 
know, uh, so every single one of those aspects is very, very important. It's an amazing, amazing uh, tip there. So certainly uh, make sure you're writing that one down, people. And and I, I just wanted to mention that the, the charity aspects uh, called Well Children and, and the things that you've done there have been, you know, absolutely amazing. Is there any way people can support those causes? You know, is there any way that people... Yes, can... absolutely. On the Accord yeah. Children website, um, you know, we're, we're going to help uh, maybe 15,000 children this year, maybe 20,000 next year. We need everybody to help and watch out whatever way they can, either volunteering or making contributions. And what they should know is it's the most efficient charity on the planet because I pay all the operating and administrative expenses so when anybody donates a pound to Cordwell Children, it's actually going directly to the cause. None of it's getting lost in administration and costs. It's all going directly because I will continue to pay all of those costs. So it's a very effective ch- uh, charity and a charity for ch- children that really desperately need the help. Could you just give us a, a couple of examples of things that have been done recently to really help? I, I think it would be really good for the audience there. Well, we help thousands of children with autism. We have uh, we diagnose kids with autism and then we have a therapy, therapy pathway for them with workshops that help uh, with their condition. Yeah. And we provide wheelchairs for kids with muscular Troubles yeah. like type two muscular atrophy or cerebral palsy. I mean, we actually help children with 650 illnesses. And one of the earliest children that we helped, little Tilly, she was three when we helped her. Uh, she then went, won a scholarship at Stanford University of all things in America, mm. went to Stanford University and is now on an internment with Disney in LA. And, uh, that's the sort of difference. Everybody listening to this. Mm. And I can help make to these children's lives. My, my little boy has autism, so I'm really familiar with uh, my little boy Sammy's seven. So, you know, I'd certainly like to, um, you know, for, for you joining us on today, I would certainly like to do something as well to try and help out. So brilliant. Well, Great. Look, that's uh, amazing. I've really, really, really enjoyed the, 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 you know, the conversation today. There's so many tips there for, for people to really, really jump in. So go and get the book because it is packed full of things that are going to make a massive, massive impact. Even if you're at the beginning, you're starting out or you're super successful or somewhere in between, it'll make a massive impact on you. You know, thanks so much for giving you time today, John. I really, really appreciate it. Very, very great. Great pleasure. Thank I'm you. Glad we could, glad we could uh, finally get you on, right? Hi everybody, Adam here, and I hope you loved today's episode. hope you thought it was fabulous, and if you did, I'd like to ask you a small favour. Could you jump over and go and give the podcast a review? Of course, I'll be super grateful if that is a five-star review. We're putting our all into this podcast for you, delivering you the content, giving you the secrets, and if you've enjoyed it, please go and give us a review and talk about what your favourite episode is, perhaps. Every single month, I select someone from that review list to come to one of my exclusive Academy Days and have lunch with me on the day, meeting hundreds of my clients. So if you want that to be you, then you're going to be in with a shout if you go and give us a review on iTunes. Please, of course, do remember to subscribe so you can get all the up-to-date episodes. Peace and love, and I'll see you very, very soon. Thank you.